Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, the managing editor of the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my co-host, Michaela Herman, spoke to Professor Leah wright Rigueur, an associate professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and Harry S. Truman, associate professor of American history at Brandeis University. Professor wright Rigueur joined the U.S. Center on March 5, 2020 for the event, African Americans in a White House. Presidential Politics, Race, and the Pursuit of Power. Ahead of the event, Michaela spoke with Professor Wright Rigueur about the racial politics of the Reagan administration, the unique positioning of black Republicans in American politics, and changes to black politics and protest over the last half century. Well, thank you so much for being here, Professor Wright Rigueur. We're really glad to have you. I'm just going to start off by asking... What was the housing and urban development scandal of the 1980s, and how did it fit into the racial politics of the Reagan administration? (laughs) So what wasn't (laughs) the housing and urban development scandal of the 1980s? So essentially, the housing and urban development scandal of the 1980s is this major corruption scandal that happens over the course of the 1980s and actually extends out of the Reagan administration and stretches into the 1990s. The case actually isn't really settled up until roughly 1998-1999, and that's when the independent investigation and independent prosecution around the case um, stops. But it involves a number of corporate lobbyists, uh, public real estate developers, lobbyists as well, Reagan uh, administration officials, and others who embark in essentially the looting of the federal honeypot and money that is set aside for low-income housing. And it's not a small amount of money. We tend to think of this as you know a scandal that people have forgotten about, but it's actually one of the largest scandals of the modern 20th century. So over this cor- over the period of time, you know, uh, of interest, this 1980s period, roughly four to eight billion dollars goes missing and is misappropriated for money that is set aside for low income and affordable housing. So I'm going to say that number again because it's really important, four to eight billion dollars by anyone's estimate. And, you know, just for clarification, most of that money is not recovered. And so what happens is that all of these people essentially realize that the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD for short, is a slush fund and that they can use it at their discretion, they can use it at their disposal, and it becomes a space where they can dole out favors and political favoritism to their friends, where they can punish their enemies. And the real problem is that the money that the federal pot is set aside for, low-income communities, low-income neighborhoods, low-income individuals, ends up not benefiting them in the slightest. And so we see not only a real uh, withdrawal from the federal government from housing and urban development, but also the exacerbation of housing crises, homelessness uh, in the United States during the same period. And so part of how it fits into the racial politics of the Reagan administration, actually, there, there are multiple ways that it fits into the racial politics of the Reagan administration. The first one is that African-Americans are disproportionately represented in uh, the beneficiaries of the housing and urban development uh, monies and set-asides. And so they suffer. And part of this is this larger culture of really neglect um, and in some cases open hostility to African-American communities. This is a devastating period of time, and the Reagan administration goes to great lengths to really dissolve the relationship between HUD and the community affected communities. And it has a devastating impact on African-American communities. 
The other part is that there are various African-Americans who are involved in HUD who work on uh, uh, work in HUD and either are beneficiaries of this corrupt money or try and manipulate the environment, this kind of cloistered environment in this re, uh, regressive environment of HUD because they are suffering and try and take advantage in other ways. So there's a lot going on during this moment and it's right smack, it's a really good and illuminating story for you know, opening up what are the racial politics of the Reagan administration during the 1980s. Yeah, that is fascinating. I can't believe we don't talk about that more. So to kind of continue on in that vein, how did the Reagan White House create a culture of corruption in HUD funding? The idea of a culture of corruption is something that isn't necessarily partisan. You know, Democrats can be corrupt. Republicans can be corrupt. Libertarians, Greed Party candidates, you know, part, uh, uh, <laughs> corruption knows no political party per se. However, one of the things that happens, corruption is rooted in attempts to achieve and attain power. And one of the things that happens during the Reagan administration, particularly when it, uh, because it is the real first real modern presidency that introduces and ushers in an era of new conservatism. So what happens is that this new conservatism, which is really grounded in an idea of deregulation, lack of oversight, and really dismantling the federal government, ends up exacerbating this pursuit of power and this culture of corruption. So we see a rise right, in the ideas of uh, lack of transparency, lack of oversight. So people are you know, deeply bureaucratic, but also parsed out. We also see um, that money, um, HUD in particular, is one of the agencies and one of the departments that is punished and so really loses more than 78% of its budget over the course of eight years. And just to put it in perspective of all the other departments that the Reagan administration uh, targets, only uh, the education department is targeted um, and it ends up having its budget cut over the course of you know this amount of time and its budget is only cut by 4%. So HUD really is the federal punching bag but what ends up happening is that the tightening of resources, right, the pulling in and the uh, receding of resources and the attempt, of, you know, this attempt of uh, new federalism and really decreasing the role of the federal government and oversight and lack of transparency means that the competition amongst people for that HUD funding becomes even fiercer. So later on, when we see interviews with people who, you know, participate in the corruption, they say things like, well, I knew I had to participate in it because how else was I going to get money? I wasn't going to get it the fair way or by applying or anything like that. So we see that it increases the attempts at corruption or the willingness to engage in corruption. And then the last thing that we really see is that there is a sense of nepotism and political loyalty that emerges. So prior to this, you know, there's always, again, a dimension of kind of political loyalty when a new administration takes in, you kick out the old political appointees and things like this. But now it's much larger. So people come in because of their political loyalty rather than, say, they're purely their expertise. But not only that, they are rewarded for displays of loyalty. So we see a lot of people who refuse to question, you know, things that we can now look back on and say, well, that was corrupt, that was illegal, that was unethical. But also the understanding that if they do, you know, 
dole out favors, reward their friends, reward administrative appointees for certain things, whether it be monies, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, um, vouchers or things like that, that in fact, they will be rewarded in other parts of their career. And so all of this contributes to this larger culture of corruption that really thrives during the 1980s. So pivoting a little bit to kind of a really broad question, what have been the most significant changes, if you can put your finger on one or two, in Black politics in the U.S. over the last 40 years? So, you know, 40 years. <laughs> Very tight time frame. Very tight time frame, and at the same time, such a huge tight frame. And there have been so many significant changes in Black politics. I mean, the most natural one that I think we can all see is that America elected a Black president, its first Black president, Barack Obama. But I think more than that, we've seen a funneling out of Black politics into two really distinct camps, ideological camps, and of course, um, and, or partisan camps, I should say. Um, and so African-Americans are overwhelmingly partisan. When we look at Black voters, for example, they are the most partisan of any racial group within the United States. And you know, even predating the 40-year the mark, they have thrown their loyalty to Democratic candidates, by and large, over and over again. And really what, we're, what we see over the last you know, 40 years is the solidifying of that partisanship and a growing kind of political polarization away from the Republican Party, but also what I would call racial polarization because black voters are really coalescing around an affiliate, a political affiliation, of democratic affiliation, but also liberal identity, whereas white voters, uh, the majority of white voters during this period of time are coalescing, are beginning to coalesce around the Republican Party. And so this plays out in partisanship and voting behavior. So it's not just political polarization, it's racial polarization. Now within that though, and this is the part I find really interesting, there is a subset of black voters that both self-identify as conservative, although that doesn't necessarily translate into partisanship, the way that they vote for candidates, although it may show up in terms of their policy preferences or how they behave on a state and local level politically. But also this re-kind of configuration of what black Republican politics means. And so 1980 is really a changing point for black Republican politics. So one of the figures that I'm really interested in is this figure, Samuel Pierce, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, 1981 through 89. And he's really the last of the old guard black Republicans, Eisenhower Republican, uh, Rockefeller Republican. He's liberal by and large, you know, in the, the ideological spectrum. But he helps usher in this new era that says goodbye to those old politics and introduces what we might call a kind of neoconservatism, the kind that we associate with the Clarence Thomases of the world or even the Ben Carsons of the world who would go on, you know, fun fact, goes on to be HUD secretary under Donald Trump, right? So you have this moment that's coming full circle. So there is this, you know, there's a small subset of African-Americans who decide that they're going to be Republicans and affiliate with the Republican Party, and their conservatism is much more in line with the whatever conservatism is espoused by the Republican Party. And so this is one of the big splits that I see in Black politics happening. Um, the last thing that I'll say is that, you know, I mentioned that conservative strain 
that maybe is not partisan in the way that we think about it, right? There's this conservative strain of African-Americans that is not showing up in the Republican Party because that's a bridge too far for them, right? But it shows up in the Democratic Party. And so there is a shift away from the kind of old guard black politics, the Shirley Chisholm's or the Carl Stokes or things like that, towards what eventually evolves into what we might call the neoliberalism of, say, a Barack Obama. And that's happening. That is a real transformation. That is a real story that happens in this period of, you know, the last 40 years as well. And so kind of you touched on it a little bit now talking about black Republicans and that is one of your books as well, The Loneliness of the Black Republican. What was their experience throughout the 20th and 21st centuries? So one of the fascinating things about black Republicans over the course of the 20th and 21st century is that you can actually use them as a larger case study for the evolution of black politics over the last, you know, 120 years or so. You know, there's a way in which we have focused on African-Americans on the left and African-Americans in the relationship with the Democratic Party, and rightly so, because that's where most of the action has happened in terms of progress, you know, for equality, civil rights, uplift, that kind of thing. But when we look at kind of the relationships that is, that's happening, both African-Americans who work within the Republican Party as Republicans or with the Republican parties for tr strategic reasons, what we end up seeing is a larger story about voting, African-American preferences, you know, why African-Americans left the Republican Party en masse overwhelmingly, and what the environment was like for African-Americans who continued to stay within the party. And so part of what I discovered in writing this book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, is in fact African-Americans don't wholly leave the Republican Party until the 1960s. And so there is this real shift, this real moment. Uh, you know, most people put it in 36, a couple of people put it in 1948, but 1964 is the moment that African-Americans leave the Republican Party and the majority of them never look back. Since 1964, no Republican, if I'm being generous, no Republican presidential candidate has won more than 18% of the black vote. So anything between six to 18%, is completely normal for a Republican candidate in the modern period. And part of that is this relationship, this increasingly hostile and antagonistic relationship on the basis of race that African-Americans have with the Republican Party. The other thing that we see is the evolution of African-American political thought and action during this period. So we know a lot about African-American grassroots activism, the activism of the civil rights movement, the activism of black power, the activism that leads us, you know, that we can trace almost a direct line to Black Lives Matter, the you know, labor coalitions, things like that. What we also learn about is this kind of black middle class, black moderate, right, moderate to liberal, um, behavior on the ground. And what we see is this evolution of black politics that happens in distinct waves. I just so happen to look at, you know, what are the waves for black Republicans? And so one of the waves that we see marks, say, the 1964 period in the um, vast ideological spectrum that makes up black politics during this period. And then the last thing that I'll say is that we see, you know, I'll say two things. 1980 marks a real transformation for Black Republicans and for African-American voters. 
And one of the things that we see is an increasing conservatism amongst those African-Americans that self-identify as Republican, in part because of the passage of the civil rights legislations of the 1960s, so the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and the 1968 Civil Rights uh, Act there as well. What it does is it changes the landscape for African-Americans, where they can say, we have legislative protections. Therefore, this frees up, for some African-Americans, a space for them to become even more conservative. And so this is how, in part, we get the Clarence Thomases. This is, in part, how we get you know, the Ben Carsons who say, we don't need any more federal legislation. We have it. We have the same protections. So we see that transformation. What I'd also say right now is that we are seeing a different or a new wave, the evolution of a new wave of black Republican activity. So we're seeing um, both the kind of building on these old traditions, including, you know, we don't need more federal protections. But I see, I think in part, we're also seeing the emergence of an almost what I would call an anti-ideological black Republican that is almost purely based in pursuit of access and power, right? Like almost a cynical pursuit of access and power even to the detriment of, say, their own racial community. And I think it's important to think about this because Black Republicans have always operated in this liminal space where they have been you know, a political minority within their racial community and a, a racial minority within their political community. And so it produces very different results. One of the things that we see is an a increased viciousness in how African-American Republicans respond to uh, black communities, but also an increase in how they police the behavior and the ideas of uh, their community in an attempt to access uh, the halls of power for themselves. Um, so kind of building on the through line of how you know movements of the past have come through to the present and grassroots activism in that changing over time, how do current protest movements like Black Lives Matter link back to some of those longstanding trends like inequality in American society and policing practices throughout America? Sure. So I think one of the uh, brilliant things about Black Lives Matter as a large overarching umbrella movement is that they're building on a number of movements that have deep historical roots. And they're combining them in order to produce their own new movement that is you know, adjusted for the present. And so we see a lot of building on, say, for example, the labor movement. You know, several of the founders of Black Lives Matter get their start in uh, labor unions, organizing groups, particularly, you know, black women's organizing on the ground. That is a central component of what they do. We also see, you know, direct links to black feminist, black women's power movements, third world movements that happened of the 1960s and 1970s, revolutionary third world movements that are instrumental for providing the theoretical framework for a lot of these early Black Lives Matter activists and for highlighting questions of racial injustice, but also societal and class injustice that really permeate um, Black Lives Matter uh, in the 21st century. And then I think the other thing that we see is uh, certainly, you know, a kind of militarism that uh, defines the Black Power movement of the 60s and the 1970s and a cynicism, not simply about conservatism, but also about the American liberal creed, about American liberalism, right? So it's, it's a push towards radicalism, but also a reliance on the decentralized leadership model 
of the civil rights movement, you know, essentially made famous uh, by Ella, somebody like Ella Baker or SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So this idea of decentralized leadership and teaching others to lead in communities. So this kind of local grassroots movement that branches out into a national uh, broad-based uh, movement. And then, of course, I think one of the consistencies, and I always point this out to students, is that Black people in the United States have been fighting police brutality since they could fight police brutality. You know, I love to do, I teach this one class on race riots. And one of the things that I like to show is the ways in which African-Americans are protesting against police brutality in their communities in, say, like 1919 Chicago. And then we can trace it to, you know, 1940s Harlem. And then we can trace it to 1965 Watts riots. Then we can trace it to 1967 through, you know, riots that are happening through 1972. Then we can go all the way up to the L.A. riots. And one of the root causes is always African-Americans in this uh, relationship with the police that is rooted in brutality uh, and, and brutalization. And I think we see this, you know, in the present day moment, when we look at the Ferguson, you know, the riots in Ferguson, when we look at the riots in Baltimore, for example, in 2015, there is a root cause that links inequality and police brutality, particularly at, uh, in terms of failures of the state and violence on the part of the state against black bodies that has a long history and also has a long history of African-Americans protesting it. Um, and the last thing I'll say here, it's really important because a lot of, you know, a lot of people try and point out that um, movements like Black Lives Matter focus on interracial violence and uh, police brutality or brutality of the state. But that's actually not true. What they're focused on and what they've had a long history of focusing on is the role of the state in abandoning its citizens, the role of the state in um, being hostile and being violent and oppressive to their citizens. And then also, what are the systemic and systematic inequalities within the community, whether it be you know black, whether it be white, whether it be Asian, whether it be multicultural, what have you, that you know um, can be changed through movement politics. And so I think it's a much broader question than simply saying, oh, black versus white or something like that. That's a simplistic notion of the kind of work these movements are doing and historically have done. Absolutely. And so last question here. Your next book project is called Morning in America, Black Men in a White House. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and give us a small preview about what it's going to say and what you're researching? Sure. Morning in America looks at the period of the 1980s and the Reagan administration and African-American interaction with the Reagan administration to tell a much broader story of race, inequality, and even gender in America during this period. Um, one of the things that I discover is that African-Americans engage in unusual and in sometimes even peculiar partnerships that defy partisanship, defy ideological explanation in an attempt to both achieve power, but also to change the standards and the uh, conditions for the communities in which they live. So there are all kinds of interesting partnerships and behaviors that these people engage in during this period that might seem surprising to the two of us or to the audience who that's listening right now, um, or even to the people during the 1980s who are on the ground, but in fact make sense for the people that are engaging in these activities because they really believe that these new kinds of partnerships will produce power both on an individual level, but also on a community-wide level. 
Now, what these partnerships reveal beyond, say, these kind of really interesting, um, you know, newfangled way that people are trying to think about it is also the deep corruption and hostile environment through which, you know, these individuals are working. And it's really important, I think, in sussing out the root of the rot because it says something large, uh, much larger about racial politics, about inequality, and about you know, the status of power in America that you know, lays the groundwork for a lot of the things, a lot of the, you know, whether it be corruption, whether it be inequality that we see in the present day. So there's no understanding you know, the contemporary, the present, the, the present day presidential administration without understanding uh, this 1980s period. There's also no way that we understand, say, um, the Democratic primary, you know, something like that, the 2020 Democratic primary and the relationship of African-Americans to these different presidential candidates, whether they be, you know, far left, whether they be center left or something like that, liberal, moderate, whatever we want to call it, radical. But there's no way that we can understand that without going back to this period and looking at the behaviors, the broader behaviors of African-Americans. So housing becomes you know, a useful case study for understanding these broader issues, which then lead us back to the present day moment. So that's what I'm looking at. <laughs> that sounds great. I can't wait to read it. And um, thank you so much for being here and sharing your thoughts. And yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Professor Leah wright Rigueur is an Associate Professor of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and Harry S. Truman, Associate Professor of American History at Brandeis University. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Check out this feed for the recording of Professor wright Rigueur's lecture at the event, African Americans in a White House, Presidential Politics, Race, and the Pursuit of Power. Thanks so much to Professor Leah wright Rigueur for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Kayla Herman. The Ballpark Podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and like lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.